It's Friday, February 24th. They knew everything had changed overnight, but a year later, they're still standing. We start here. Ukraine marks one year of fending off a Russian invasion. And shelling how often? Sometimes every five minutes. Ian Panel's been checking in with those whose lives have been changed forever. He's been called a cold-blooded psychopath, so why would you put him on the stand? Oh, what a tangled web we weave. The surprising testimony of Alec Murdoch. And he was innocent, just not the right kind of innocent. You're penalizing a person because he, you know, was found not to have committed the crime. An exonerated man challenges Missouri to pay him back for his time. From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. A year ago this morning, most Ukrainians were huddled indoors. Many expected the night before could be the night that Russia finally invaded, but not as many expected such a widespread aerial assault. And suddenly, in the wee hours of the morning, it was clear that the goal was not a parcel of land, not another Crimea. Russia's objective seemed to be to take the capital, then the country. Why are you out here? Uh, we want to show to other people uh, they are not afraid. Well, as this new day began one year ago, those people left their basements. They got out from underneath their overturned bathtubs. They came out of their homes and they started fighting back. Kersonians cannot be dispersed by that. Together, they began one of the great resistances of the 21st century. And so today, after a year of war with a world power next door, after a week of speeches and ceremonies, I want to check in with what is happening in Ukraine for Ukrainians. I want to do it with ABC's chief foreign correspondent, Ian Panel. He's back in the country this week. And Ian, thanks for being with us. First of all, can we talk about Ukraine as a place right now? Like, What do these cities even look like a year later as you're driving between them? Um, I think I'm struck by the stark contrast. It really depends where you are. I mean, some of these cities are barely cities anymore. Think of Mariupol. I think of some of the towns uh, and and small cities like Izium in the east that were occupied by Russia that were heavily fought over, and they are just shells of their former selves. They've been depleted of population. There are buildings that have been razed to the ground. Uh, there are terrible stories and events that have taken place there, uh, alleged war crimes, torture chambers. Uh, and these are dark places that are going to take a very long time to recover. But I think if you look at somewhere, for example, like Kyiv, the, the capital where I am now, I'm kind of struck looking out at how much more life it feels that it has right now than a year ago. It was almost like the lifeblood started to drain away from it. We are beginning to hear a series of explosions. The kinds of scenes we have not witnessed in Europe since World War II. You had so many people who fled the city. Uh, the, the night sky was darkened, and it was a city full of apprehension. There are Russian teams throughout Ukraine looking for people. We knew that Russian troops were approaching. There was this huge convoy, at times 17 miles long, uh, that was bearing down on the capital. And there was a real sense of foreboding about exactly what would happen. But I think what you're seeing today is the, the triumph of the resolve of the Ukrainian people, that they refuse to bow down. 
they refuse to give way to, to Putin's will. They did fight back. They managed to save Kyiv and the capital and the government. And they're refusing to live their lives the way Putin wants them to. So when there are opportunities to see friends, to walk in a park, to take your kids to a playground, that's what Ukrainians are doing right now. Well, and so if those are the places, what about the lives within those places? You've been speaking to families basically before the war started and then since the war started and now a year later. How does this change a family forever? Yeah, I mean, one thing that's very clear is I don't think Ukraine or Ukrainians will ever be the same again. Things have, have altered irrevocably. There's one particular family that we'd met actually more than a year ago, back in January. Uh, Mariska Podolko, who's a, a news anchor, a breakfast news anchor. What's it like having to report and cover the possibility of an invasion into your own country? Mm, unfortunately, uh, I have experience of uh, covering invasion in 2014. Yegor Sobolev who was working uh, in IT, he'd been a lawmaker, the pair of them had met um, during the struggle for freedom on the streets of Kyiv, some of those protests that we'd seen years earlier. So here we get to see both. That's me reporting on him. <laughs> he always ignored me when I was in power. She's got to be independent. And they had three children and we'd met them in their dacha out in the countryside on a crisp winter's morning. Yeah, We'll show even you a better lake, professional lake for professional um, fishing, ice fishing. And you can stay here, we have an, a room for you <laughs> and a lake. <laughs> they were sat there making waffles, uh, you know, tending to their pets, doing their homework. It was a regular kind of Sunday morning scene that you could find, not just across Ukraine, but probably anywhere in America. And then the moment came when the war struck. And Yegor had been a volunteer with the civil defense. He was immediately called up. So he took his three kids in the car across the country, drove through the night. This was on the eve of war when it became clear that what was about to happen. He checked them into a hotel. The eldest at this point was just 14 years old, but he was put in charge until the grandparents could get there. He then drove all the way back across the country, again another eight, nine hours to Kyiv, he kissed his wife, Marishka, goodbye, and he went off to war. So how close is the uh, Russian positions here? Uh, their positions started uh, behind the bridge. Right, so OK. 200 meters. Right, maybe. OK. And he spent most of the last year on the front lines, in particular in the battle around Kyiv. He was posted to Irpin, to the front lines, a man who, when we met him, was was walking around the woods holding a wooden gun. I was going to say, like, he, he's an IT guy one day and a soldier the next almost. Exactly. And shelling how often? Sometimes every five minutes. Uh, sometimes uh, we had a rest for an hour. And he tells a compelling tale uh, about living underground, in Irpin, coming up to the front line. And it was our shelter. The, su uh, the sewerage channel yeah, is your absolutely. shelter. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Every, every time, because of very strong Because artillery yeah. coming we, into we, this we, position. Out of seven. Wow, wow, wow. And, and I think he speaks to how Ukraine has managed 
to hold back the might of the Russian army, which at the time everyone's saying this is the most second powerful army in the world. It was about ordinary men and women like Yegor Sobolev, who stood tall, um, who, who answered the call of duty, who were prepared to risk their lives in defense of their country. Somehow, I'm being a strong girl when I have to be. So. Mariska Podolko, when we'd met her back in January, she talked about the dilemma she would face, and, and for those of us who are journalists would understand this, that when a story of that magnitude happens, do you go to work or do you go to your family? And we just, for the first few hours, until we had special first reports from the president's statement on the reports from our colleagues, we were just talking to people and uh, talking to each other. And, and she, her colleagues, not just their news station, but other news stations came together to form a, a united front where media, which were clearly being targeted by Vladimir Putin, remember the TV tower in Kyiv was one of the initial targets, of the bombing raids. Because when uh, they hit the TV tower, the signal was interrupted, I think, for an hour or so, but we got back quite easily. They would go almost uh, underground to keep the flow of information going. For the first few months, months of invasion, I did not only do my own shifts, but I also was a backup anchor for many other channels, and I even slept at that location. So if something goes wrong with them, I just wake up and uh, go live, whatever happens. Today, her two daughters are living in Prague, in the Czech Republic. Her son, uh, Misha, is still living with her in this small flat in central Kyiv, which often is without power. Lights went off. Uh, this is the power? <laughs> yes, that is the power, and exactly they are on schedule. And Yegor Sobolev is there on the front lines. But he says something very powerful, that they have a very simple choice here fighting in freedom or dying in uh, slavery, in occupation. Either to live in what he calls slavery, in other words, under the Russian yoke, or to fight for freedom and stand for Ukraine. Right, and it's so easy to imagine a family, a father, a mother saying, I'm sorry, but like, I, I need to be, what is all, what is the point of this if I can't be with my child? And yet then you have these parents, and this is probably what Putin was not expecting, is so many of these parents saying, no, this is more important. Like over the long term, this is the difference between my child having a happy life and not. But then Ian, it makes me wonder, there are kids who got out and are able to stay with relatives in other countries or in other cities, but there's lots that weren't. Like, has this war created a nation of orphans and of children who will not see their parents again and of children who, who don't have a family, at least for the time being, as this plays out? I think it's a nation of children who lost their childhood. Mm. I mean, they had their childhood taken from them by Vladimir Putin on February the 24th, 2022. And we've met a number of those children. Right. And you have Mickey Mouse here. One young girl, Angelina, who's 11 years old at the moment, has spent the last 12 months living underground in a basement in a shelter with her mom. What do you miss most about your life before the war? Most of her friends have gone, her school has gone, she's lost her childhood. So the most she's missing is school. Uh, also, she's missing her teacher. And so many children have similar stories of loss. But they've also stood strong. Oh, Angelina, Angelina! Oh. We were lucky enough to visit a camp 
for children in the west of the country as Angelina was sent there by her mother. And we got to meet some of the other kids there who'd also gone through incredible uh, loss. They tied your hands behind your back. Some of them had been tortured by Russian soldiers who'd occupied their cities. Uh, one young girl had seen her mother cut down by shrapnel in front of her eyes as her city was attacked. A lot of them have the most appalling, terrible experiences, and this camp was giving them an opportunity to have their childhood back together again. And, you know, when you talk to those kids, they do have terrible stories to tell, but they are also remarkably stoic and strong. They recognize the gravity of what's happened to their country in this last 12 months, the need to stand tall, and if the time comes, the need to serve as well. Ian, lastly, as we look forward now, like now we're beginning year two of this war. You said how how much resolve there is on the Ukrainian side, but I mean, what is that... What is this war going to... We, we talk about how like Putin has lost the battle for the Ukrainian soul. That, that He's never he's not going to win that at this point. And yet, there's still a war going on. What is this war going to look like in year two? Yeah, and, and I think President Biden a few days ago touched upon this in, in, in Poland, that, you know, th- this isn't over, that there are dark days ahead. Well, I just come from a visit to Kiev, and I can report Kiev stands strong. <laughs> I was struck, you know, when I came back to Kyiv, um, close to the anniversary, I think a sense of almost weariness, because in the early days, there was almost an expectation that if they just managed to withstand the initial Russian assault, then perhaps this, this could be over. But I think now everybody understands, everybody recognizes, you know, it doesn't matter what their background, all Ukrainians will now tell you, that this war cannot end until all Ukrainian land, that's including the land that was taken by Russia back in 2014, is back in Ukrainian hands. That There is no plan B here. Just as they had to stand tall to withstand the initial Russian assault, they have to stand tall to reclaim their land and drive Russian forces from it. Which is why one year into this war, no one's talking about a peace deal. Both sides are just talking about victory. All right, Ian Pennell there in Kiev one year later. Thank you so much. Thanks, Brad. Next up on Start Here, the most closely watched murder suspect in the country takes the stand in his own defense. We're back in a bit. We all know there are things in life that you have to compromise on, but when it comes to your health, there should be no compromise. Don't go back to that one doctor, you know the type, like I've had this person before, that doesn't actually listen to you or who seems just in a rush to end your appointment that you spent months making. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. You can search by location, availability, and insurance. So no compromises here because with ZocDoc, you got more options than you know. We're talking about booking appointments with tens of thousands of top-rated, patient-reviewed, credible doctors and specialists. Go to ZocDoc.com slash start here and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's ZocDoc, Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash start here. ZocDoc.com slash start here. 
This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Have you ever wondered what you would do with an extra hour in your day? I think about this all the time. I'm like, I would be so productive. I'd exercise more, or I'd read a book, or I'd take a nap, like restore myself. We often find ourselves yearning for these extra hours, but the real question is, what would you do if you were making yourself a priority? Well, how about therapy? It can help you discover what's important so you can make the most of your time. If you've ever benefited from therapy, you know how transformative it can be. It's not just for those who have experienced major trauma. Therapy empowers you to learn positive coping skills, set boundaries, and become the best version of yourself. If you're considering starting therapy, you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and tailored to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire. You'll be matched with a licensed therapist. And here's the beauty of it. You can switch therapists if you're not finding the right fit. No additional charge. Take the first step. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash start here today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash start here. If you've been following the murder trial of Alec Murdoch, one of the things that makes it so captivating is that while everything here is very tied to South Carolina, in some ways, this could happen anywhere. A small town, a powerful family, powerful enough perhaps that suspicions might sometimes go unchecked. And once the authorities began pulling at one thread a pair of murders, a tangle of accusations began to unwind. Alec Murdoch stands accused now of murdering his wife and son, who yesterday, against all expectations at the beginning of this trial, he took the stand in his own defense. Let's go to ABC's Eva Pilgrim, who's been covering every angle of this, every step of the way. She's been at the courthouse throughout the trial. Eva, how dramatic was this? It was incredibly dramatic. It was one of those decisions that came about pretty last minute. We'd been hearing rumblings that he wanted to take the stand, but I literally got a text at six in the morning that said, it's happening. Have you made a decision as to whether you're going to testify? Yes, sir. All right. And what is your decision? I am going to testify. I want to testify. And he took the stand and the courtroom sort of gasped because it was, is this really happening? What kind of questions was he there to answer? Because this is obvi- this is the defense calling him, so they think that he must be able to help this case somehow. Well, I think the question they needed to have answered is, what was his alibi? Where was he that night? Because the state had raised real questions about that. And he starts calling people. He's talking to people. It'll be up to you to decide whether or not he's trying to manufacture an alibi. Prosecutors say that he murdered his wife and son on the family property near their dog kennels. His story is that he came home from work, he did some work around the property with his son, he took a nap, and then he went to check on his mother. And Barbara Ann told me, your mom's agitated, you need to check on her. I gave her medicine, she's resting. But they say that as he was going to check on his mother, he used that as like an alibi. Uh, And when in all actuality, he killed his wife and son, cleaned up the scene, went to check on his mother as a place marker, and then came back. And that's when he made the 911 call. Okay, and are they breathing? No, ma'am. Okay, and you said it's your wife and your son? My wife and my son. There's a video of... Uh, voices at the dog kennels just minutes before the murders happened that his son took to show one of his friends his dog that he was looking after that was having problems with his tail. Hey, he's got birds in his mouth! And in that video, you can hear a voice that on the stand, Alec Murdoch admitted was him. On the kennel video at 8.44 p.m. on June 7th, the night Maggie and Paul were murdered. It is. 
and it placed him at the scene of the murders just minutes before this happened. And so they needed to address that. Why did he lie to investigators about being down at the kennels, being near the scene minutes before? What was he doing? Where was he? What actually happened that night? I could see his, could see his brain laying on the sidewalk. I didn't know what to do. I can tell you the jurors were very much paying attention to him in a way that we haven't seen them pay attention to many of the other people that have taken the stand. They were all turned towards him, looking and listening at his every word. The courtroom was silent. I mean, you could have heard a pin drop. Once I lied, I continued to lie. Yes, sir. Listening to him admit that he lied to investigators, listening to him explain why he did that, him saying that he was paranoid. His opioid addiction had made him paranoid and he didn't trust investigators. And so he lied. And then once he started lying, he just kept lying. And that's what he said. He lied to everyone. He lied to the investigators. He lied to his family. He lied to his friends. And he made this comment, you know, oh, what a tangled web we weave. As he talked about the fact that the lies really just got out of hand for him. Well, does that help your case then, Eva? Like, if you're the defense, to have your star witness, like the defendant himself, go up and say, oh, yeah, I was like, I could barely stop lying. Is that what's going to help you? Or I, I guess these topics just had to be talked about one way or another. They had to address it. And I, I think it was a decision Alec Murdoch had to make. Was he going to address it for this jury? I mean, he got in front of the jury, and he also talked about the fact that he stole millions of dollars from clients. I stole money that was not my money. I misled people that I shouldn't have misled, and I did wrong. He admits that. He says, I stole all of this money. I did this. I'm very sorry. He says he's ashamed of it. He's embarrassed about it. He's, he feels shame that he brought this onto his family. But he draws the line there and says, I did not murder my wife and son. Yeah, and so some of that came out under the defense. The prosecution got a couple hours questioning him last night. Well, they're back getting another crack at Murdoch later today. We'll see what happens. Eva Pilgrim, they're right outside the courthouse. Thanks so much. Thanks. All right, one more quick break. When we come back, he spent 28 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit and was offered little more than a handshake. One last thing is next. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. And one last thing. When you think about people wrongly convicted of crimes, you might think the most common way to exonerate someone is through DNA evidence. That's kind of what I thought. Since DNA testing has become a thing, hundreds and hundreds of American inmates have been found to have been wrongfully convicted. But every year... Many more convictions are actually vacated through other means. In fact, as awareness of flawed eyewitness testimony and policing tactics have grown, we actually saw the number of non-DNA exonerations spike last year. And yet, in states like Missouri, a man like Lamar Johnson is still expected to give 28 years of his life away for free. For the benefit of Lamar Johnson is granted. 
That was the scene just 10 days ago when Lamar Johnson was freed, finally found innocent of a murder he never committed. State v. Lamar Johnson calls 22-941-37068, is hereby set aside and held for not. As everyone got up to leave in that courtroom, Johnson was still sitting there, stunned that this ordeal had somehow ended. Barely a week later, earlier this week, Johnson was at the state Senate asking Missouri lawmakers to pass a bill that would compensate people like him for wrongful convictions. See, under Missouri law, vindicated felons can get compensation already, but only if you were exonerated with DNA evidence. Nice to meet you. (laughs) Yeah, nice to be met <laughs> outside of earth, outside of prison. And yesterday, I called up Lamar Johnson, who described telling the state Senate committee that the only clothes he could afford were the ones on his back that had been donated before this hearing. You're penalizing a person because he, you know, was found not to have committed the crime. Under the current law, if you're one of the few people exonerated by DNA evidence, you're eligible for up to $100 a day for which you were wrongfully locked up. This bill would nearly double that to about 65000 bucks a year, and it wouldn't matter why your conviction was vacated. And think about how many ways there are to be exonerated in the first place. Like, what if a video was finally unearthed that proved you were innocent? That wouldn't be enough for a check? Johnson's murder conviction relied on an informant who had every reason to sound more sure than he was. Now they was find out about the jailhouse informant, and it just showed that he had a history of doing this, that he, he'd lied on law enforcement, he parted uh, African-Americans. Now, 28 years later, Johnson is relying on generosity while he starts his life over. In fact, he's talking to me from the parking lot at the DMV. Yeah, I was trying to... Uh, get my driver's license, I got the, uh, the, I passed the written test, and I have to take the uh, driving test. It seems like a big moment, especially like oh, as yeah. you kind of get your life back and everything. Yeah, I know. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, felt like I was 16 again. He knows he's not the last convict who's going to be exonerated, who's going to go through something just like this. He's hoping others won't have to do it without the safety net even parolees get, folks who did what they were accused of. I asked him what's next for him. Definitely looking for a job. Somebody's willing to give me give me an opportunity in that area. Uh, and other than that, I just want to live life. I want to you know, experience some of the things that a lot of people may find annoying or take for granted. Uh, I said earlier that you know, holding a crying baby or standing in line is moving too slow. All these things that people you know probably don't even give a second thought to, or if they do, it's in a negative way. I'm going to enjoy every second of it for as long as I can. By the way, I asked Lamar if he was nervous about parallel parking or anything. He said he's feeling good, but that sometimes he's a little too eager to hit the brakes. Every part of his life moving very quickly right now. Start Here is produced by Kelly Therese, Jen Newman, Brenda Salinas-Baker, Madeline Wood, Vika Aronson, Iru Ekpanobi, Cameron Chertavian, and Tara Gimbel. Ariel Chester is our social media producer. Josh Cohan is director of podcast programming. I'm our managing editor. Laura Mayer is our executive producer. Thanks to Lakia Brown, John Newman, Liz Alessi, and our intern, Amira Williams. Special thanks this week to Chris Berry, Janice McDonald, and Sohel Udin. I'm Brad Milkey. See you next week. The first ever criminal trial of a former president is underway in Manhattan. It's one of potentially four trials facing former President Trump as he makes his third bid for the White House. What do voters think about his culpability, and would a guilty verdict make a difference in the election? 
I'm Galen Druk, and every Monday and Thursday on the 538 Politics podcast, we break down the latest news from the campaign trail. We sort through the noise and zoom in on what really matters using data and research as we go. That's 538 Politics every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.